abide in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers in exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. And God, we uh, praise you for the better country that awaits us as Christians. Um, Lord, praise you for the future um, uh, promise of heaven, Lord, that we as Christians um, will dwell in eternity uh, with you and with each other, singing your praises and working for your glory in the new heaven and in the new earth. So God, we praise you for that. Lord, we praise you for this time that we had today uh, where we uh, gather around uh, a lesson about how you have uh, faithfully built your church over the generations. Again, Lord, I ask that you would uh, be honored in our time today. Lord, I pray that it would not just uh, increase our head knowledge, but Lord, I pray that our hearts would be uh, grown in trust and faith in you because of the way you have blessed your people through the ages. Lord, I thank you for our spiritual ancestors, not because they founded a land here in America, but because they're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, just like we are. So thank you for these ancestors that were uh, saved by your grace. So I pray you would bless this time. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Okay, so uh, the first thing we're going to talk about today, like I said, you should have a handout. It's just a brief review from last week if you did not join us. Uh, Last week we had two major points. I hope to get to what we're actually going to talk about today last week, but I didn't. So uh, the two main points we talked about last week is this is the time period we're in talking about early American church history is foundational uh, to understanding of how God has built his church here in America. Uh, But in the 1500s and the 1600s, there's kind of some unique things going on in the history of the world. Number one, this is an age of exploration. So with the age of exploration, uh, colonies are being built and uh, established in North America, primarily at this time. And uh, countries like France and Spain are establishing territories in Canada for France and then in uh, South America, Central America, and the southwestern parts of the current United States in uh, for Spain. They're colonizing there, and both those countries are Roman Catholic. However, towards the end of the 1500s into the early 1600s, England comes, um, gets involved in uh, exploration as well. This coincides with the rise of Puritanism in England as well. So one of these things is an endeavor, uh, the exploration is an endeavor uh, to grow um, England's power around the world, Um, their ability to trade and have different trade routes. Yet Puritanism is uh, how Protestantism is growing in England during this time. So during the reigns of several of the monarchs of the 1500s and 1600s, you first have Elizabeth I, and she has some 
both run-ins and uh, allows for some involvement uh, by the Puritans in her reign. So when you think about Elizabeth I in England, she includes the, the Puritans for the most part. The next king is James I, um, and he, on some level, is kind of involved with the Puritans a little bit, but we could characterize his involvement with them more as in ignorance. He's just letting them kind of do their thing on their own, and maybe he pacifies them a little bit, but he doesn't really embrace their ideas. And then the third king who's involved heavily in what we will talk about today is Charles I, and he did a lot of things to suppress um, uh, the Puritans and the Protestant church at that time. So the Puritans during this time, their goal was to purify the Church of England. It was not their desire to separate from the Church of England. Uh, so they wanted to purify the church and um, kind of wash all of the remaining Roman Catholic um, parts of the liturgy, uh, theology, rituals, traditions. They wanted to wash that away from the Church of England. So their goal was to purify the church. Um, so each of these monarchs that I talked about just a second ago were all involved to, to a degree of how the Puritans affected the Church of England. Um, there's another group of people, though, that weren't um, excited about purifying the Church of England. Instead, they desired to separate completely from the Church of England. We started talking about them last week, uh, at least one specific congregation, but these are the separatists. They also go, could be called nonconformists, maybe dissenters. There's a lot of different uh, uh, ways that they can be described throughout history. These nonconformists believed in local congregational autonomy uh, instead of the national church structure, structure. They believed that each individual church congregation uh, should be autonomous, so have their own self-rule. Um, and they believed that that was the way the Bible teaches for local churches to be. So based on their conscience, they thought it was best for them to separate from the church. It actually, as uh, James and Charles, as they become kings, it becomes increasingly more illegal for these churches actually to meet. And this is where we left off last week with the uh, pilgrims. That's who we know them as in American history. Uh, but actually a small group of uh, Protestant um, separatists decided to leave England altogether and that is the congregation from Scrooby, is the town in England, in the area of Nottinghamshire. Um, so this eventually becomes the pilgrims. And actually, one of the reasons they decided to leave was their pastor at the time, John Robinson, actually got arrested and placed in jail for a period of time because he had set up this independent congregational church. Um, not all the separatists completely agreed theologically. Uh, some of the separatists, not these, um, actually were Baptists. And future Baptists would come on the scene in the late 1600s in England as well. And the most notable one is John Bunyan, uh, because he, um, we know who he is. He's the one that wrote Pilgrim's Progress. So that's all introduction to where we got to last week. We talked about this group of uh, separatists leaving England and going to Holland, and they settled in the town of Leiden, and where they were allowed to worship freely. So our main topic today is to finish up the talk about the pilgrims, and then we're going to talk about the founding of another colony that was um, 
heavily influenced by the Puritans and religious life in England. Uh, so as we picked up, la- to pick up where we were last week, talking about uh, these the separatists in Leiden, Holland, um, they were granted freedom to worship as they chose in their churches in Holland. However, after about 10 to 11 years, they decided that it was not appropriate for them to continue living in the Dutch culture. They did not want their children to grow up speaking Dutch and learning uh, Dutch uh, traditions and cultures. They really embraced being an English people. So it was their desire to move away from Holland. Now, they couldn't just move back to England because the persecution that they left still existed. So they made a contract with a company called the Virginia Company to settle, to create a settlement um, in the northern part of the Virginia colony in North America. Um, Their initial attempts to do that were unsuccessful. They uh, chartered a boat called the Speedwell, and they boarded that boat and thought they were on their merry way to their wonderful new land, and the Speedwell didn't work. It didn't go very fast, nor did it even float. So um, that avenue for them to get across the Atlantic failed. Um, But eventually they did board another ship, which we know as the Mayflower, on September 1st of 1620 to head to America. Their pastor, John Robinson, didn't go with them. Uh, They were led by one of the elders of the congregation, William Brewster. And there's some great quotes from... Um, this book of Plymouth Plantation by William Bradford. Um, He ends up being one of the early governors of the Plymouth Settlement, uh, and that's the Pilgrims. And this is a great work you should read. It will reinforce your trust and hope in the Lord as you think about and consider how these brothers and sisters uh, trusted the Lord through their trials. Um, Anyway, there's there's several quotes out there I want to bring up. So as they're... uh, boarding the ship to leave, uh, to, to, to get on the Mayflower and go to the next um, location, which is North America. Uh, Bradford records something about that, and I want to read it to you just because you can feel the, the emotions that these uh, pilgrims feel for each other, their love for each other, and just the, the richness of their community. And I, I, I can't tell you that I, I don't, I also think about us and the richness and the love that we have for each other as I read these words too, seeing that we are not seeing each other on a regular basis. And it says this, it says, the next day they went on board and their friends with them where truly doleful was the sight of that sad and mournful parting to hear what sighs and sobs and prayers did sound amongst them, what tears did gush from every eye and pithy speeches pierced each other's heart that sundry of the strangers that stood on the quay as spectators could not refrain from tears. But the tide, which stays for no man calling them away, that were thus loath to depart, their reverend pastor falling down on his knees, and they all with him, with watery cheeks, commended them with the most fervent prayers unto the Lord and his blessing. And then, with mutual embraces and many tears, they took their leaves one of another, which proved to be the last leave to many of them. See, many of the people that boarded that ship didn't even make it uh, very long. Several of them passed away on their journey over, and more than half of them actually passed away uh, during the first winter 
in Plymouth. So it is really true that proved to be the last leave for many of them to see each other. Um, however, they make it across the Atlantic um, and they finally arrive on North American soil and see land first and then arrive on the soil and they are not in Northern Virginia, but instead they are in what's current day Massachusetts. They first see Cape Cod and they determine that the best place for them to settle is nearby in the land that they've named Plymouth. Um, there's a couple things that happen though immediately. Uh, the, f the first thing that happens as they decide to get off of the boat and start their uh, colony that they're gonna have to create, they sign what's called the Mayflower Compact. I have a, a copy of this. I have a, the, the words of this on your handout, but follow along as I read with you. And this is what the Mayflower Compact says. So listen here to see what their goals are for establishing this colony. And the Mayflower Compact reads, having undertaken for the glory of God in advancement of the Christian faith in honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, we do by these present solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and the furtherance of the ends foresaid. So all the people on board the Mayflower sign this, or all the men do, all the men on board the Mayflower sign this compact in agreement to each other. And what do they want to do? They want to glorify God. They want to advance the Christian faith, and they want to give honor to their king and to their country. So they're not really seeing themselves as separating themselves from England as a country. And they even see that they are under the authority of the king. So I think the Mayflower Compact is an amazing thing to think about. Not every single person that was on that ship uh, was a member of the congregation from Scrooby. Um, other people came. There were some other tradesmen that came. And yet these people agreed uh, to live a life under uh, following these same pursuits that the pilgrims wanted as well. Um, uh, one interesting fact, this week I think uh, Keith sent out a video of encouragement to you guys. I hope you guys are getting those videos and you're seeing them and, and listening to them and, and I hope you're encouraged. But you noticed at the very beginning of the one that, that went out uh, by Keith, there's a picture of uh, what's called the Reformation Wall in Geneva and had uh, several of the reformers there. I think it was like Calvin and a couple other people, maybe John Knox. And what's interesting, in that memorial and that monument at the, uh, in Geneva, there is also... Um, a monument for the signing of the Mayflower Compact. So that's within uh, that, that monument and that thing that's celebrated in Geneva. So I think that's pretty interesting that American history is touching over there when that was built. Um, so we've talked about uh, them arriving and then signing the Mayflower Compact. And now they arrive on shore. And I've given you there's one quote that I think is it's just wonderful and beautiful, but it's really long, so I'm going to read parts of it. I gave you all of this quote. I'm going to try to read some of it for you. It's, it's on your handout called The Desolous, Desolate Wilderness by William Bradford, part two. Feel the emotion as you, just as you consider the language and what he's talking about and the reality of um, how desolate 
the wilderness is uh, for these people. And it says, And the next day they got into the Cape Harbor, where they rode in safety. Being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven, who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all the perils and miseries thereof, again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth, which is their proper element. And just a couple lines later, they had now no friends to welcome them, nor inns to entertain or refresh their weather-beaten bodies, nor houses or much towns to repair to. Skip about four lines. There's a sentence that says, And for the season, so they arrived November 1st, 1620, and it says, And for the season it was winter. And they that know the winters of that country know them to be sharp and violent and subject to cruel and fierce storms, dangerous to travel to known places, much more to search an unknown coast. Besides, what could they see but a hideous and desolate wilderness full of wild beasts and wild men? And as they go on further, it says, For which way soever they turn their eyes, except save upward to heaven, they could have found little solace or content in respect of any outward objects. And the last little bit I'll read for you, it's a couple more lines later. If they looked behind them, there was the mighty ocean which they had passed and was now as a, as a main bar and gulf to separate them from all the civil parts of the world. What could now sustain them but the Spirit of God and His grace? May not and ought not the children of these fathers rightly say, Our fathers were Englishmen who came over this great ocean and were ready to perish in this wilderness but they cried to the Lord, and he heard their voice, and he looked on their adversity. Let them therefore praise the Lord, because he is good, and his mercies endure forever. Yea, let them that have been redeemed of the Lord show how he hath delivered them from the hand of the oppressor. When they wandered forth into the desert wilderness, out of the way, found the city to dwell in, both hungry and thirsty, their soul was overwhelmed in them. Let them confess before the Lord his loving kindness and his wonderful works before the sons of men. So you can you kind of get a feel for what this uh, landing was like for the who we're going to call the pilgrims. And we call them the pilgrims because later on Bradford writes uh, that they were pilgrims and looked not much on those things, but lifted their eyes to heaven, their dearest country, and they quieted their spirits. So that these pilgrims... Um, have left everything, and they've gone to a land that's uh, wild, untamed, and also about to get really, really cold and have a really, really harsh winter. Um, so that is what happens to them next. They start establishing their colony. That means they have to build houses, establish um, laws and government, and begin hunting uh, Many of them are already ill as they uh, get off the ship. Uh, one word to describe the winter would be harsh. Um, half of those that uh, were on the ship when it crossed the Atlantic actually died. Um, and it was really, really difficult. At one point, uh, Bradford writes in the book that only five or six people were able enough to care for the others. Uh, the captain of the, of the Mayflower, uh, Standish is his name, uh, performed admirably, as did Elder Brewster. 
and Governor Bradford as well. Yet eventually, they got through the winter um, with less than half of the people that they brought. And in the spring, uh, things began to look up for them. Uh, they began to form relationships with uh, Squanto, who Bradford calls a special instrument of God. Squanto was a Native American who at this time belonged to the, the tribe of Chief uh, Samoset, the, the native people that were kind of over that territory. Um, Squanto, this is an amazing providence of God, uh, um, years before had actually been captured and taken as a slave to Europe, and there he actually learned English, um, and he ended up getting back to um, North America through some other means. And so the idea is here that Squanto was able to communicate in English with the pilgrims, and he was able to communicate with Samoset, the leader, there on behalf of the pilgrims. So that's a special, wonderful providence of the Lord towards the pilgrims. Uh, so Squanto helped them, and the Native Americans helped them to grow crops, learn how to fish and hunt in this, this land for them. As spring dawned, uh, the mortality rate began to subside, and Bradford even confessed this, and he says, the only thing we had was the Lord to uphold us. And he said, in the suffering that they endured beforehand prepared them, the suffering they had had before, so they had already left their homes in England and gone to Leiden. They'd already experienced the um, sadness of their pastor being arrested. They've experienced the sadness of departing sweet, sweet fellowship with their friends uh, who remained in Leiden. So it was that suffering that prepared them for the difficulty that came before them. I think that's an important thing as we consider what the Lord's calling us to experience. Even now, what things does the Lord have planned for us and what is he preparing in us to respond faithfully and with endurance? Hopefully we can respond similarly to the pilgrims. In subsequent years, uh, well, of course, you know the story of uh, Thanksgiving um, at harvest time. I won't get into that, but in subsequent years, other people from Leiden joined them. However, their pastor, John Robinson, never was able to join them. He passed away before he could. And the largest the colony actually ever got was to about 300 people. And after much toil and struggle, um, and you can read about that on your own, uh, these colonists eventually joined the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1691. They united with them. So that's the first of the two English colonies we're going to talk about today. The second is the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So the, the, the important thing, you can really compare and contrast these two uh, colonies. Um, the, the reason I wanted to mention the fact that only 300 people ultimately joined um, the colony in Plymouth is that's not the case for the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It is a large colony as it's founded. So it is founded in 1628, and it's led by a man by the name of John Winthrop. And it's founded in 1628 because uh, William Loud at the time in England is the Archbishop of Canterbury under the leadership of Charles I, and he is really starting to ramp up the persecution of the Puritans. So Winthrop begins this... Uh, um, uh, settlement in uh, Massachusetts in 1628, and throughout all of the 1630s, there's a great migration of Puritans 
to North America into these colonies that are being established first by Winthrop. Approximately 30,000 people came from England all the way across the Atlantic to be part of these colonies that were being formed in, in Massachusetts. Uh, the majority of these people actually came from an area in East England. It's called East Anglia, and it's the area where Cambridge is found on your map today, if you're curious. Uh, but the goal here to establish this colony was to form what they would call a new England in America. They wanted the, the colony that they established to be a light to the world and even to their English homeland. Uh, Winthrop said this that about himself and the people, that they were a company professing ourselves fellow members of Christ. And he believed that the Lord would be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways. Winthrop even invoked divine judgment on himself and his fellow colonists should they break their covenant with God. And he said these words, which are pretty famous. We shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work, we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his presence, help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. So either they were going to be a light to the world or an example of God's judgment if they didn't follow after God's ways. Um, and the people that came were Christians. Most of the people not only grew up as Christians, but had had um, actual stories of conversion, testimonies of God's changing their lives and regenerating them. And that was a hallmark for these Puritans, is they needed to be able to give testimony as to how they have been changed by the gospel. Um, one thing that needs to be pointed out, and this, is, this holds true of Plymouth as, as well, this colony is not founded on the idea of religious freedom, um, but rather is one that promoted the Puritan vision for all spheres of life. Um, it could be said that those who differed from the Puritan majority were encouraged to exercise their liberty to live elsewhere, not to live in this colony. And we'll talk about some of those people next week, but two names that you could think of. One is Roger Williams, or consider, and the other one is Anne Hutchinson. So what was the, this colony like? Well, there's some theological distinctions that these Puritans really embraced. Uh, the first would be the idea of covenant, um, and a covenant not just between uh, God and his people, but God and uh, the family, the church, uh, the government, and the society, or the commonwealth as a whole. Um, a covenant, as you know, isn't an agreement. So for the individual, a person is saved because God gives Christ's righteousness as atonement for my sin or your sin or their sin. And you, in turn, have faith in God. So that's the agreement. Now, this is a covenant of grace, of course, because God also gives the faith. And God, of course, is faithful not to break the covenant. The church consists of individual Christians who covenant together to serve God. So that's the first part of this idea of covenant. Covenant, But they also had an idea that God makes a covenant with societies or with nations when they glorify him. So if disaster strikes, then it was a warning that people were not living up to their covenant obligations. So they would call on everyone to fast and repent. 
So you can see how this uh, covenant view envisions a society that is holistically Christian, where both sacred and secular life are tied together in a sacred covenant between the people and with God. Um, so the, the idea of covenant is a distinction. The other one is they, much like the pilgrims, uh, followed a congregational rule of government for the church. Um, so that different from, differed from the Church of England and its hierarchy of priests and bishops and archbishops who reported up to the king. Um, so they had local pastors um, that occasionally would get together with other pastor. A pastor at a local church would get together with another church at a local church, and they would talk about things. But they didn't make decisions for the whole church, churches that existed in that community. Um, they also, this is often called the New England Way, and the New England Way is this idea around congregational um, understanding of church. It is the idea that local churches are established, and they include visible saints, so actual Christians that actually go to the church and attend the church, that um, visible saints that attend these independent churches, and these churches don't have any control beyond their own local church. And these visible saints, as I said earlier, are actual Christians, not ones that were just baptized as infants, even though they had infant baptism. But these are the ones that had given witness to a changed life because of the gospel. Um, so they um, had to give evidence and a testimony of their changed life to be granted membership in the community. So we talked about the covenant. We've talked about the congregational aspect of the church. Uh, they also emphasize preaching, and this is one of the most preaching was one of the most regular forms of communication at that time. Uh, the pastors would not only do the preaching that they would call regular preaching uh, throughout the week on the Lord's Day as well, they'd also do what's called occasional preaching at monumental or important events throughout uh, the community. So let's say the, um, I don't know, maybe uh, the, the assembly or the government was meeting for the first time. The pastor would be invited to come give an occasional message. And it was through that medium that oftentimes some information was communicated. A lot of information was communicated. Uh, so preaching was important. The, the pulpit was set up similar to how it is here at Calvary Bible Church, um, with the pulpit being in the center of the stage and a Lord's Supper uh, table and the elements being below that. Um, they had a high reverence for God's word and for it to be preached. Uh, the, the topics of the sermon often focused on things like salvation, sin, grace, and of course the covenant and the commitment for the community. This is different than a lot of the preaching that was going on in the Church of England that was not Puritan. Oftentimes they just gave a short homily out of the Book of Common Prayer, and there was not a lot of intensive study and talk in those or sermons that were intensive and, and preached faithfully. But these sermons were faithful. Uh, the church also was at the center of the town. So as a new community was being established in Massachusetts, obviously all 30,000 of these people didn't live in one colony. Um, the church was placed at the center of the, the town. These were simple structures. I'm sure you've seen pictures of them. They're beautiful. Uh, the Puritans, much like the early reformers, really wanted to have a pure biblical worship so you wouldn't see a lot of ornamentation or 
ostentatiousness in the decorations or anything like that. One of the things they prohibited was stained glass, and it wasn't just because they thought it was um, over the top or maybe idolatrous or looked to Roman Catholic. The primary reason they, and I found this really interesting, didn't want to have stained glass was they actually wanted light to peer, to come into uh, the church so the people, as they were there, could actually see their Bibles and read them along with as the pastor is preaching. So they had a really practical reason behind wanting non-stained glass windows in their churches at the time. So we've kind of talked about church distinctions. We've talked about the growth and the founding of this the colony at Massachusetts, but some distinctions about uh, just the, the community and the commonwealth as well. Um, just a couple things here, and I'm almost done. Uh, only church, only members of Christian church members, let me rephrase that, could hold office in the civil government. The clergy themselves didn't run the government. Separate people did that. Um, and they also emphasized, besides preaching, there was a great emphasis on education within these communities. They were very learned, and they all were, most of the people that came on these, uh, settled these colonies were uh, avid readers, and they had collections of books of their own, and reading and education was very important to them. Um, as you can guess, they held God's word in high esteem and loved to read God's word on their own. Uh, because of this, in 1648, uh, the colony actually established Harvard College. Imagine that, and the goal of Harvard College was to train pastors, and that's the reality for most of those Ivy League schools in the Northeast. They were established as religious institutions, Christian religious institutions, to teach pastors how to be pastors and how to preach. Um, oh, how those institutions have changed in the last few hundred years, and actually they changed pretty quickly. It's, it's really shocking if you look at the history of those uh, institutions, and we'll talk about that as we go forward. So that's, that's wrapping up the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So today we talked about two um, colonies that were formed in New England, both of Christian, uh, with a major Christian emphasis, the Plymouth Colony, and then the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Next week we'll talk about a couple other colonies, just so you know, and we'll talk about some, some uh, dissension that begins in New England, and then we'll touch on kind of what is the church like prior to the Great Awakening. Um, so that's, the, that's where we're headed. That's one of the main topics we're going to cover in this series is the Great Awakening. And we'll get back to this study in two weeks. Uh, next week is Easter, so we'll not be teaching church history next week. But I do want to conclude uh, today with one last scripture, and I hope this would encourage you as you um, place your hope and faith to endure and to respond faithfully at this time in the Lord. So Hebrews 12, verse 1 and verse 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. God, we praise you for this time we've had. Lord, I pray you would help us. Lord, help us to see Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith, and may we live lives 
following his example. Lord, I pray you would uh, give us endurance. Lord, I pray you would give us greater affection for you as we consider uh, what you have for us to learn just in our current circumstances. Lord, I pray you would humble us and help us trust you more. Lord, I pray as we go uh, attend our the worship service virtually, pray, Lord, you would give us hearts that honor you in your truth, and pray, may we be passionate, uh, Lord, about your word and about your gospel. Lord, we praise you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.